So if you, some of y'all know me better than others. If you know me well, you know something about me. Uh, I don't, I'm not really very good at asking for help. And so if there's something that needs doing, even if it's too much for me, even if it's car repair or something like that, uh, I tend to take that on myself, even if I know uh, it's not going to end well. I'll still try to do it alone. Part of that, I think, is that I just don't like to feel inadequate. I don't want anybody to think I can't do something. I don't like to think that there's something I can't do. But then I know there's another issue is I just don't want to bother people. I don't want to pick up the phone or send a text and be a burden to somebody, and so I'll just do something myself. Well, you might be able to guess, then, that I can, I'll carry that same temptation into my walk with the Lord. That there are so many times I find myself trying to live my life as a Christian in my own power. I'll make decisions without prayer. I try to overcome sin through my own effort. I'll just feel guilty, grit my teeth, and try harder. I trust so often in my own wisdom rather than pouring over the Scripture and asking the wisdom of God. And that's something I do feel confident about, that you, you at least know something of that testimony, of trying to live the Christian life in your own power without seeking out the help, support, strength of the Lord. And y'all, listen, that actually would work if the Christian life were a moral checklist. If the Christian life were simply a matter of, here are the things that make you a good person, these are the things that please God, here's the list, go and do it. Do your very best. And to those of us who are especially committed, who've got lots of diligence and initiative, We'll try really hard, and perhaps we can do enough to climb to the top of that kind of ladder. But that's not the Christian life. Knowing and following Jesus is not something that can be done in your own power. You could be the wisest, most disciplined, most well-behaved person in the world, and it wouldn't matter a lick in the eyes of God. Because the life that God calls us into is a life that only God can create. God must create it. It's a new life entirely. And so not only is God the one who has to produce it in us, but God is also the one who animates this new life. Everything that we are and everything that we do ultimately must come back to the Lord's work in our life. And so, y'all, it's crazy talk to even speak of, of the Christian life as something that we could do in our own power. There is no such Christian life. And that's why Jesus continually makes a promise as we walk through the Gospel of John. He promises us a helper with a capital H. A helper. Twice in chapter 14, again in chapter 15, we see it again now in chapter 16. Jesus says, I will send you a helper. That is the Holy Spirit. And my hope today is that when we get into the specifics, as Jesus explains a little bit about the Spirit and his work in our life, that we won't diminish that word helper to simply think, well, Jesus is offering an add-on. It's ultimately up to me to perform the Christian life, to do what's on the list, but Jesus has promised to bail me out when I really get in trouble. That's what the Holy Spirit's here to do, just to help. And y'all, the reason that word helper is a capitalized word is because the Spirit is not magic dust for when we really need God's help. The Spirit is the very person of God who does more than just help. 
The Spirit is our very life. Because the Spirit is God who indwells us. And so that's what John 16, at least today's portion of the scripture, is all about. And if if it helps maybe to catch us up to speed a little bit, what's happening right now, Jesus is with his disciples. Only 11 remain. Judas the 12th has already left to go and betray Christ. And so Jesus, the time, I mean, the clock is ticking at this point. The cross is right before him. He's about to die. And so several times now, Jesus has told the disciples, I'm going away. I am going to the Father. And the disciples aren't totally sure what he means by that, but they know from their perspective, they know it's not good. Jesus is about to leave us. And then what Jesus has just said prior, we read this last week, he drops this bombshell on them. Jesus tells the disciples, the world will hate you because you're associated with me. The world has hated me and it will hate you and reject you in the same way. And so just try, I mean, try to imagine the frame of mind that these 11 men are in right now. They, I mean, they're, they're right on the edge of, I think, spiraling into grief and despair at this point. They're about to face severe persecution, and the Lord, Jesus, will not be there to lead and protect and preserve them. How in the world are we going to get along without Jesus? And to that, Jesus speaks these words. This is John 16, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Y'all see the prospect of Jesus going away is crushing these men. It's causing them great sorrow and grief. But Jesus has the audacity to say, it is to your advantage that I leave. This is better for you, not worse. Now, how can that be? I mean, honestly, how how is it that Jesus leaving the disciples could possibly be to their benefit? Well, there's two massive reasons I want us to see. Y'all, first, when Jesus says, he is going to the Father, that's not just spiritual language for I'm leaving. He's not just dressing up the fact that he's about to leave. Jesus, when he says, I'm going to the Father, that is shorthand for his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. All that is about to transpire in what we call the passion of Christ, his death, his resurrection. If Jesus were to remain on earth with his disciples, that would have been their wish. If he'd have taken a vote, they would have been unanimous, all 11, yes, Jesus, stay with us. But had he stayed on earth with them, Jesus would have been forfeiting the very purpose for which he came. The whole reason, the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came to the earth was to die and then to rise again. And so this going away to the Father, it's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus that he can make atonement for sin. It's only by dying and rising that Jesus can bring salvation to the world. He has to go to the Father in that case. And if we, if we grasp that, it's just this kind of the most basic level of understanding then for the disciples and for us, yes, it is better 
for Jesus to go away. He has to go away because only then can our sins be forgiven. Can we be reconciled to God? But what's more, Jesus tells us, having accomplished salvation and victory over sin and death, then the helper will come. And this is to your advantage. The helper will come, the Holy Spirit. And y'all, there's such a profound teaching right here that comes to us straight from the mouth of Jesus that what he's implying here very clearly is this. The Spirit within you is better than the physical presence of Jesus in front of you. And that for us is a hard pill to swallow. It certainly was for these men in this moment. The presence of the Spirit within you is better than Jesus standing right in front of you. That's what he's saying. And so we have to ask the fair question, okay, how can that possibly be true? Now, y'all, entire libraries are written on the ministry and the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to condense a good portion of that down into about three minutes to try to give us a survey, a flyover of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is greater than probably what we recognize, certainly greater than our perception of the word helper, which may not seem to be all that special or even necessary. But here's who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. John, uh, Jesus, actually back in John 6, made a, a, a huge mountaintop kind of statement. In John 6, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The Spirit gives life. That's something he told Nicodemus a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3, that famous conversation. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the new birth. That's the only way we get into heaven. It's the only way we are reconciled to God. When we get to the book of Acts, we see in Acts, so often when people receive Christ and are saved, Luke describes it as these people received the Holy Spirit. Their salvation depended on the Spirit of God falling upon them and indwelling them. Then in Romans 8, Paul says the defining mark of a Christian is that we have the Spirit of God. Paul says you belong to Christ if the Spirit of Christ indwells you. And so, y'all, there's first and foremost, there is no salvation apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't say, well, the Holy Spirit comes along after the fact and kind of helps you out as needed. No. The Spirit is there from the beginning. You only have life in Christ in the first place if the Holy Spirit makes it so. So salvation comes by the Spirit. Now, In 1 Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, but the Apostle Paul gives us another facet of understanding the Spirit here. And this one, to me, is even more profound. When the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's calling us away from sin. And specifically, Paul says, you need to flee sexual immorality. Run from that sin, because that is a sin you commit against your own body. And here's how Paul reasons this out. Why should we flee immorality? Here's the answer, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Your body as a temple is not motivation to eat better and get exercise. Let's not diminish the meaning and make it about something else, right? What does the scripture say? It's a declaration. Your body is a temple. This is what God has done in sending his spirit to indwell us. And if we have any sense of of what the temple represents here, y'all, the temple throughout the scripture is the place of communion with God. The place where God is worshipped, where the people gather to pray, and where the Lord uniquely meets with his people. This is where communion with God is at its most pure and precious. And Paul says, that is now you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which means that God has delighted to make his home in us. That God has delighted to commune with you. And to make you his very own. To set you apart as holy and precious to him. That's how close, that's how intimate God desires to be with you. That your body would be the very temple of God's spirit. And Paul goes on to say that you were bought with a price. Which means God made you a temple of his spirit by paying for you. And that payment was the precious blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so y'all, again, the ministry of the Spirit is not a attack on, an add-on. This is life itself. To be saved. To be called to communion with God and a, a life of holiness. We require the Spirit of God indwelling us. This is the precious gift of God. And so y'all, I know it seems maybe kind of wild to say it like this. But you're better off right now, right where you sit, regardless of how you feel. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you have more of God's grace and you have more of God's presence right now than the people we read about who walked behind Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we may envy them because wouldn't it have been so great to watch these miracles unfold and to be covered up in the dust of his feet as we traveled behind him on the road? Sure. I mean, it'd be be pretty cool. But you're better off right now. You really are. Because you have, by faith, the indwelling of the Spirit. Because Jesus' going to the Father resulted in the Spirit's coming to us. And y'all, that's a very short survey. There's a lot more that we could say, of course, about the Holy Spirit. And there's more that we will say because Jesus will say it. But y'all, this is something that is endlessly precious to us. The very person of God who's come to make his home in us. Now, I don't want to deviate too much from John 16 because Jesus actually does give us some more specific ministries of the Spirit. I just wanted to make sure we understood at a broader level what helper really means. Helper does not mean sprinkling. Helper means life and everything we need for life. So Jesus is going to tell us now, tell the disciples, two specific ministries of the Spirit. One is more broadly and generally to the world, and then one is more specifically to his followers, to those who believe. And so look with me first at this general, this greater work of the Spirit, beginning in verse 8, John 16, 8. Jesus says, and he, the Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, 
and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now there's layers to this. It can be actually a little bit of a tricky scripture. For one, because Jesus actually said something two chapters earlier. In chapter 14, Jesus, when speaking of the Spirit, says, the world cannot receive the Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. And so we have to be clear in this, that when Jesus speaks of the Spirit's work in the world, the Spirit does not come indiscriminately to every single person in the same way. Not everyone receives the Spirit. The Spirit is given uniquely and exclusively to those who believe in Christ. And yet there is a great work of the Spirit for the sake of the world. And this is what Jesus tells us here. When he comes, Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so, y'all, what that means, one of the great ministries of God's Spirit is to show the world, to prove to the world, to prove to sinners their true estate apart from God, to pull back the curtain on what we really are apart from the Lord. The Spirit will expose us for who we really are and our deep need for salvation. That's the point here. And Jesus gives us a little comment for each one of these here. The Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's take those three very briefly in turn. Jesus says, the Spirit will convict of sin because they, the world, do not believe in me. Now, it's interesting that he gives us that little specific point there because the Spirit's work is greater than just proving that sin is bad. Most people know sin is wrong. Most people experience some form of guilt over sin, even if it's misguided guilt. We know, generally, the difference between right and wrong. But the Spirit, His great work is to expose not just sin in general, but the one most critical sin, which is the sin of unbelief. Rejecting or ignoring Jesus. That's not just a sin in itself, right? That's actually a rejection of sin's antidote which is what makes it the most critical sin. The sin of unbelief is not just saying, I, have, I don't prefer Jesus or I don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can actually cure the curse of sin. And so it's a double sin in that regard. We're rejecting the only one who can save us from the curse and the penalty of sin. And so this is the unique work of the Spirit to convict us of sin specifically concerning sin's remedy. Jesus, and faith in Jesus, which grants us the forgiveness of sin. And so the Spirit convicts the world of wrongdoing, but is always pointing to belief, because belief is the only hope to cure it. Next, Jesus says, the Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to the Father. Y'all, there is a very, even though most people know something's off, something's wrong, whether we call it sin or not, we do hold to a very strong sense of our own goodness, our own righteousness. Even if we know we never live up to our own standards, we still know what goodness is and we believe we can achieve it. And one of the great works of the Spirit is to expose human goodness as insufficient in itself that only the righteousness that comes through the death of Jesus can give us a right standing before God. 
And so this is the Spirit's work to say to us, nobody can rest on the belief that God will accept me because I'm a good person, because I'm sincere, because I try my best. No, only through the cross of Christ, only by Jesus going to the Father, can anybody be made righteous. He is our righteousness. And the the Spirit will convict us of anything that is ultimately empty in its place. And then finally, Jesus says, the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, this is the trickiest of these three statements. Here's what I think he means here. The ruler of the world is the devil. And one of the chief deceptions of the devil is to convince the world that there is no ultimate judgment. God will not hold us accountable for our sins. And even if he wanted to, God is too impotent to pull it off. God doesn't really know what he's doing. That was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve. God can't run the world. He doesn't know better than you. He's holding out on you. Take it for yourself, right? So Satan's great deception from the beginning is to say God can't be trusted as the judge of the world. But Jesus is saying through the cross and the resurrection, there is a decisive judgment upon him, upon Satan. Jesus judges. Jesus defeats the ruler of this world. And so having deposed Satan, Jesus now stands as the true and righteous judge. So the Spirit's work now is to show people the imminence of his judgment. God has fixed a day, Acts 17 says, in which he will judge the world according to righteousness. And yet we celebrate in the gospel that Jesus, the judge, has been judged. He took on the condemnation that our sins deserved. And so even as the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, it is so that the revelation of God's mercy might be seen and celebrated and received. There is an escape, a rescue from judgment found in Christ. And so this is the work of the Spirit, not to condemn and leave the world in hopelessness, but to show the world its hopelessness so that the world might see Christ as our only hope. Isn't that wonderful? Now, this is a divine work, right? This is very obvious. This is a supernatural work of the Spirit. But I will say this, mainly, the Spirit's work here occurs through the life and witness and ministry of the church. Right? Um, we hear stories about people dreaming dreams and seeing visions, and y'all, I, I, don't, I don't deny that or doubt that at all. But primarily, the work of the Spirit is through people who are filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the grace of Jesus so that there might be conviction and a resulting faith. Now, we share that grace, yes, and then we trust God with the outcome. Only the Spirit gives life. Only the Spirit convicts, right? But he uses us, and we should be grateful that he does. And so when Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm going to the Father, this is not to be mistaken for God saying, I'm abandoning the world. You had your chance. I gave you 33 years, right? The foundation was laid, the example was set. No, it's not abandonment. It's actually the opposite. In sending the Spirit, God is making salvation possible for the world. This is how the gospel goes, not just from Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and to the furthest reaches of the world. All of the earth now may hear and receive of Jesus Christ because the Spirit's work in the world is not limited to any one place or time or people group. God has not abandoned the world. In fact, the coming of the Spirit is God's proof that he loves the world. 
Now, the Spirit has another role to play, not just more broadly, but specifically within the life of the believer. This is the last thing we'll look at this morning. Jesus acknowledges the grief his his disciples are feeling, right? Sorrow has filled your heart. The prospect of him leaving is too much for them to bear. And so he issues a promise. True for them, and it's true for us right here too. Verse 12, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he, the Spirit, takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So Jesus says there's so much more for you to learn, to know, to grasp. But the time is short and your hearts are weak. You're not ready for it now but he makes them a promise. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so y'all, this is true for the disciples in a unique way. It's also true for us. That one of the great works and ministries of the Holy Spirit is the work, the gift of revelation. Y'all, the disciples, think about them at this point, the disciples are still very much in the dark about why Jesus has to go away. They don't really understand. And they're indignant, they're angry at the thought of Jesus going away through persecution, that that the people are going to actually take him, beat him, persecute, and kill him? May it never be, Peter says. They don't understand. They don't even have a category for his resurrection, even though he's promised to do it. They had no expectation that he would rise again from the grave. And we might look at the disciples in all their ignorance and wonder, how could these men be so dull? How could they have not understood this yet. But all of this, Jesus says, will be understood only as the Spirit of truth makes it known to you. Of course they didn't understand it yet. They didn't have the Spirit. And the Spirit will come, Jesus says, and this is another reason why it's to your advantage that the Spirit comes, that Jesus goes and sends the Spirit, because only the Spirit can reveal and enlighten and open up the greatest and deepest truths of God to your heart. Only then will you really understand. Only then will the ministry of Jesus be applied to your life in a way that his physical presence never could. Now, if that sounds a little overly spiritual, maybe it is, let me give you one more concrete example from the Scripture Uh, Read Acts chapter 10 sometimes. The reason you and I are here right now is Acts chapter 10. We're Gentiles, we're not Jews. And there was a time where the Jews believed that the exclusive grace of Jesus was just that. It belonged to them and no one else. But there's a place in Acts 10 where Peter is summoned by the Lord to go and preach the gospel to a group of Gentiles. And Peter didn't want to do it. He refused to do it initially until God made it clear that that was his divine will. The point that Peter assumed, that all of the Jewish Christians at that point assumed, was that salvation belongs to the Jews. The Gentiles are pagans. They're outsiders. They're idol worshipers. Surely God does not have a plan for them. But Peter obeys the voice of the Lord. And he goes... 
And as Peter preaches to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, Luke tells us that the Spirit fell upon those who were listening. And they were saved. The Gentiles were saved. And Peter responds to this by saying, if God granted to the Gentiles the same Spirit He's given to us, if they've received the Spirit in the same way we did, who are we to stand in God's way? See, this is, y'all, this is something that Peter and the apostles had no category for. But God's Spirit opened their eyes, their minds, their hearts to the truth, the great truth that allows the gospel to go out to the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. Something they did not understand, they had no category for. The Spirit guided them into that truth and changed the world. The active, precious, personal work of God's Spirit. And so, y'all, this is how the promise works, not just for them, but for us. Jesus says, the Spirit will guide you into all truth, all truth. So if you want to, to grow in your understanding of God's saving purpose for the world, of God's will for the church, of God's promises for the future, of God's love for the saints, for you and me, all of those precious truths are disclosed to us, are made real to us and applied to us by the work of His Spirit. And that's why we, we close, I want to close with just a repetition of these final words. When Jesus encourages us, this is verse 14 again, He says, The Spirit will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that the Spirit takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Well, it's, it should be clear, I hope, that Jesus is talking about more than just information right here. The Spirit's role is not simply to relay facts to us. It's not just to give us information. You see what Jesus says. He takes of mine and discloses it to you. The Spirit of God applies to our hearts all the wonderful grace of Jesus. All the grace of Jesus. Now a part of that grace, a big part of that grace consists in the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. He will guide you into all the truth. Right? But it doesn't end there. The Spirit applies all of God's grace and mercy and love to us, which means we receive from the Spirit strength and hope and assurance, and comfort, and encouragement, and boldness, and joy, and peace, and every single thing we need to live the life that God has called us into. Every good thing that Jesus died to purchase for us, everything that God has promised to us is now applied by the work of the Spirit. Now, the disciples eventually came around on this. Here in John 16, they were not keen on this promise. Anything that would have taken Jesus away from them was a bad thing in their eyes, right? And we can understand why. But eventually they came to understand the pouring out of God's Spirit is the very purpose for which Christ came. And therefore we can understand, I hope, just a little more and celebrate a little more 
the fact that the Spirit within us is better, better than if Jesus were in front of us. The Christian life, y'all, is not something we do. Not something we produce, that we manufacture, a checklist that we keep. The Christian life is something that God creates and animates. All that we are is a gift because of the Holy Spirit that He has made to indwell us. And by faith in Jesus Christ, He is ours, just as we are His. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you will open up our eyes, including and especially, I pray, the eyes of our hearts, as Paul phrases it, to see, to be enlightened as to this grace that you've given us. Father, not only the grace of seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised, but also the resulting grace, the outcome, the Spirit coming, the Helper who indwells us, the Counselor, the Strengthener, the Comforter, the Spirit of Almighty God. Father, open our eyes to see that we have been given a gift beyond our comprehension, beyond what we are worthy to possess, We have the Spirit to give us life. We have the Spirit calling us His temple, communing with us, intimately connected, because You love us. Lord, give us, I pray, a a real wonderful, deep sense of the power that now resides within us, because You are here. And you've delighted to come near. Give us, I pray, Lord, a deeper sense of of the truth of Jesus and the grace of Jesus because the Spirit is always glorifying Him and making known what is of Him and disclosing it to us, taking of Christ and giving to us all the time. And Lord, I, I celebrate, I pray we would celebrate there is some mystery here. I don't really, I don't fully understand all this. But Lord, help us, uh, even where we, where we fall short of fully understanding it, that we embrace the reality of it. Lord, at the limits of our understanding um, are no hindrance to your work in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would, as Jesus promised, you would, by your Spirit, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and use us as your people to bring that message of grace and truth so the Spirit's work might be lived out through us. But I pray also, Lord, help us to see that we were once of the world, and that same conviction was was once ours to receive and to grapple with. Sin and righteousness and judgment. Lord, by your grace, you brought us to terms with reality. And we came before you, Lord, empty and needy, and you saved us by your mercy. Lord, everything we have, everything we are, all that we can offer to the world, 
we know has come because you are gracious to us, because you fill us and send us out in the power of your Spirit. And so it is with gladness, and I pray with a renewed sense of boldness, we ask you, Lord, to do the work in us and through us that only you by your Spirit can do. And we pray it in the awesome name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.